I didn't have a particularly successful career. I managed to sort of string it out for sort of six years. Of that six years, I was injured for four of it. I got a bad knee injury. I thought that's it, career over. I'm Jack Latus, founder and CEO of Latus Health. We are an occupational health company. We deliver healthcare services into businesses. The easiest thing to do in any wellbeing program is look at sleep mm. and hydration. You get those two things right in any workplace, you're going to improve wellbeing massively. Because the last thing you want is someone spending 30 minutes going for a walk at lunchtime or say they're five minutes late back from their walk and then their manager's on their back about it or mm. people are clock watching when they walk in. You've got to say as a company, are we committed to this or are we not? Hi, I'm Steve. I'm the digital director here at Spectrum Group. Today, I'm joined by the normal John Vanoom and Neil Wells. I'm also joined by the CEO of Latus Health, Jack Latus. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So with all that said, welcome to Tomorrow's Workplace Today. So welcome to Jack Latus from Latus Health. Thank you for having me. Morning. So for, for listeners, watchers and for all of us, actually, do you want to just give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and what it is you do? Yes, yes. I'm CEO of Latus Health um, and we are an occupational health company. We deliver healthcare services into businesses. Okay. And when you say occupational health, bring that to life for, for me and everybody else. What does yeah, that entail? Yeah. So it is pretty pretty wide subject, really. So we cover anything which is health-related in the workplace. So whether that be looking after people's statutory health requirements, such as hearing tests, lung function tests, if you're working in a, an environment which is potentially harmful to health, right through to more of the sort of nice-to-haves in terms of well-being. So um, improving people's mental health, people's cognitive performance, um, and you know looking after them from a, you know providing... Uh, GPs, physiotherapy, that sort of thing. Wow. And what are the, if you're out speaking to businesses, business owners at the minute about kind of uh, occupational health and well-being, what are the kind of key themes that are coming out of those conversations? Um, I think the most sort of obvious thing is the transition from it being seen as a, a nice to have or something that we just do for improving um, absenteeism and uh, productivity to now being a key part of like your employer brand or your EVP because um, from that sort of attraction and retention point of view, it's now what people are looking for. People yeah. are no longer just looking for the salary as part of the package. They're expecting so much more from their um, employer to provide to to actually attract them to the job and then retain them. And, and of that kind of menu that you rattled off earlier, the specific things that employees, that because right, employees are looking for in terms of that EVP, as you say. Yeah, um, I think probably the more popular things now is moving towards. Um, actually looking for actionable insight out of health testing. So um, there's quite a traditional model where, and this would, you'll see this like companies like Booper and Nuffield, where they go in and do the, the old classic sort of executive health check. But what, what they're doing is they're looking at delivering diagnostics, but they're not quite good enough diagnostics to actually find out if something's def to be able to say, you're definitely not ill. Mm. But then off the back of it, you're not really getting any actionable insight to make you healthier. So the issue with that is you effectively, most people go spend three or four hours in a physician's office, do some tests, send some tests off to the lab. And at the end of it, they'll get a report back that says your BMI is a bit high and you could do, do to reduce your salt from your diet. And most people are like, I knew that already. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to waste four hours of my life doing that. So what we're now doing is using much better testing technology and uh, to deliver much better insight uh, and also looking at on a, an ongoing monitoring basis and then just actually giving people the um, actions they need to take to improve their well-being and then tracking them, providing them accountability, incentivizing them, rewarding them, and the healthcare outcomes are at the back of that are heaps better. So how does that work then? So is this, are we talking about wearable technology that can 
give that ongoing monitoring? Wearables is certainly coming into it um, okay. a lot more um, because it's so much more accessible. You know, yeah. everybody these days has probably got some form of wearable, whether they know it or not. Um, and so you can tap into those things such as Whoop, Aura Rings are really good. You know, we, we're getting good quality HRV data. We can actually see whether people are getting um, stressed, overworked, and then we can make adjustments accordingly. Um, you can do obviously sleep tracking. I mean, one of the key things or the easiest things to do in any well-being program is look at sleep mm. and hydration. You get those two things right in any workplace, you're going to improve um, well-being massively. And most right. most people don't look at those. I yeah. thought that's the thing. You, I mean, I've never heard. You know, I've heard of that, but never heard of it. You know, the correlation to to work it makes absolute sense, but it's around. You don't, you know, HR or whatever wouldn't necessarily, right, you know, how are you sleeping or, or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and actually, like you said, the output of caring about those two key sort of indicators is huge, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to build a real um, environment of trust, first of all, because as a manager, think how good you would be able to be if you were able to actually see how people were sleeping mm. and then speak to them and say, how can we help you as an employee? But to start with, you've got to get away from the issues where the employee's like, I don't trust you with my data. Mm. If you can get over that and people say, actually, it benefits me for you to see my data or for the well-being champion within the organization to see the data, then all of a sudden it's like you're, you're taking the brakes off to really improving people's health. Mm. Yeah. Creating yeah. transparency. How are businesses, sorry, how, how are businesses achieving that? How are they getting their, their people to be open with that type of data? I think everything starts with culture to begin with. Okay. So if you you've got to work on building that culture of trust, and you can't do that on, you know, just literally having a getting everyone together, having a, a great away day, and everyone being like, yeah, let's go. We all trust each other. It's only going to come over time, and it's like any form of trust. You takes a long time to build, and you will break it with a second, won't you, in one action. Mm. Um, so there's no quick answer to that. It's literally about getting your culture right, making sure everyone's in bought behind the same mission and seeing those little things, those like 1% marginal gains, which most people would consider sleeping well as, even though actually I'd consider it a, a big gain, mm. how those 1% gains make a, make the organization. I'm failing on hydration and sleep. I was going to say, I'm sure you it's can, not showing. You could probably <laughs> see it quite quickly if you, yeah, people have had a baby, for example, young yeah. family, things like that. Because sleep straight away, I remember, yeah, it's only just in the last year that my son started to actually sleep through. They I do. could argue that my performance hasn't been too bad, but still the brain fog and things like mm -hmm. that. And I did actually listen to someone that said, if you think about how long humans have been on the planet, millions of years, if sleep wasn't important, we'd have evolved to not need it mm -hmm. yeah, or true. need as much of it yeah. in a 24-hour cycle. There's so, a few people that genetically don't need yeah. as much and they can get away about four but the majority of humans need somewhere between seven and eight hours mm. sleep mm. and there's actually a massive study that's done every year where they and it's when the clocks go uh forward an hour so we lose one hour sleep every every time that happens the um instance rate of heart um, conditions goes up the next day. Literally, heart attacks goes yeah, up the next yeah. day. That, yeah. yeah, by I think about twenty three percent. And then the reverse happens when the clocks go back, so we get an extra hour yeah, sleep. Extra hour, yeah. It goes the opposite way by twenty three percent. So you can't get any better proof in terms of a study than that. Brilliant I think. data. We need to dig that data out. That's brilliant. I love that. I watched. So, uh, I watched a thing, a podcast. Actually, uh, have you seen that Liver King? He's quite an interesting brand. Have you had him on yet? He'll get him on. Absolute monster with a big beard. He's absolutely <laughs> stacked. But he, he's uh, 
he talks about his ancestral sort of premises and mm-hmm. and and sleep and recoveries. His his room, he has like all the electromagnetic sort of stresses taken out of his room. It's like his his cave. He completely locks it down, dark and and uh, yeah, he has even these sort of Faraday curtains to block out all the EMF sort of no cell phones, no nothing. He even sleeps on quite a thin mattress, so it's quite hard. But all about rest and recovery. Mm-hmm. But if you think about stress. You need your brain. Well, really, yes, you've got physical stress that your body needs to repair and recover. But in a working environment, if you're in a very stressful job, a very it's it's been able to switch off your brain, so you get that deep REM sleep that you need to sort of re- recover. And it, interestingly, the the new Apple Watch is going to be better. You talk about wearables; mm-hmm. it's going to track your sleep and actually monitor your heat and your heart rate and all that type of stuff. And they're trying to sell it those benefits to. But you're right. Once we've actually got that data could that be linked directly with a health coach or a a professional like yourself that actually can advise and and monitor a certain individual because if you look at some of the companies that you're working with some of their employees like for example like the banks and again i'm not too sure i can name drop some of the customers that you've got but again some of the key earners um they're they're making millions for that business Mm -hmm. they need those individuals yep. working and, and again, yeah. very stressful environments, but they need them, yeah, they need them functioning. Talk to us about intermittent fasting, because you're right, it's, there must be, I don't know, 10, 20 people within this business that do it. So yep. it's something you're passionate about. I'm not Why sure if I'm that? passionate. I believe definitely for males, it's it's the way forward. I think some women can struggle with it. They can tend to get a little bit bloated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a nutrition expert, so yeah. please take this as you want this isn't medical advice um but i do believe um that it's it's much better your energy levels are much better i think it's much better for calorie control um i think as humans we're not designed to eat three four meals a day i think the i think if we go back like five ten years when when i was first working for you in fact neil in fact that's a lot longer than that ago i like to think i'm only 25 i'm not um (laughs) i you know it was Everyone was much more regular meals. That increases metabolism and that's good for you. Um, and I'm sure there's some benefits to that, but I think a lot more people now are moving towards and feeling the benefits from intermittent fasting. And when we say, sorry, I should ask this first, but when we say intermittent fasting, just describe to people that aren't familiar with it what, what it, it is. Yeah, it's effectively just having an elongated period of time where you're not consuming any calories. So um, I think that most people work towards sort of like a 16 and 8. So you have 16 hours where you don't consume any calories, which if you're sleeping for eight hours, isn't actually that tough. Yeah. Effectively, you have you, the ideal scenario is finish eating three or four hours before you go to bed, sleep for a good eight hours, wake up and you've got another four or five hours to do. So right. most people will elongate their fast through till sort of lunchtime. So don't have a breakfast, only consume black coffee or um water you probably could get away with maybe some amino acids if you really feel like you need to and then yeah have a have a, a lunch and a tea good size lunch it's where tea. the word came from break fast yeah it's your first meal after you fast if you actually trace the origins back yeah, it yeah. doesn't mean just not what the western world's been indoctrinated with the kellogg's or oh, you have cereal <laughs> it's like hang on before that before kellogg's came along with their millions of marketing budget and all the rest of it what actually did yeah there yeah, are so they, many things that we do in our daily lives and take as normal that we don't realize we're actually put there by amazing marketers. Mm, you know, yeah. a lot of things, even down to, um, and again, I'm stealing this off another podcast, but there was someone who was talking about, it was one of the big, it was like P&G or someone like that who actually brought in casual Fridays so that people wouldn't wear their suit all week. So they had to wear a different set of clothes on a Friday. Therefore, they, had, they would sell more washing powder because they had an extra <laughs> set of clothes to wash. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, it's a lot of things in place which are, you know, from marketing, and now we just take yeah, them as, link as it, fact. Link it to toothpaste. You can link it to all sorts. Yeah. Of them, yeah. Again, so um, I've I've seen both of you do intermittent fasting to varying degrees. You went quite extreme because the way you've just said it, Jack. That sounds doable to me. You know, I don't mind eating, but I, yeah. I think I could. You know, if we're saying that I can, I can have a lunch, and I can, as long as I eat before I go to bed at like half ten, before half seven, and then I don't eat till lunchtime. Yeah, you know, I don't have breakfast anyway. I, I could do that. Is it, yeah, I've never really considered it in. I did it for two reasons. Seriousness, maybe three. Uh, so I was injured at the time, so there's an anti-inflammatory issue. So I had issues with my uh, wrists and elbows. I felt. I was too acidic and I also felt, I was, I was just eating the wrong things. Yeah, too much beer, too much bread, that type of stuff. During COVID, I actually, yeah, put on a bit of weight. I went up to 14 stone two, which for me is, yeah. That's my too big. <laughs> yeah, it's too big. <laughs> yeah, so to put it into context, my fighting weight, if you like, is about 12, 12, eight. You're when I was lean, I've never, never been a fighter. No. <laughs> That's <laughs> the right. right. When I'm super <laughs> lean, I'm 12 eight, and I actually got down to 12 eight through the fasting. But I did take the extreme. I did a couple of days where I literally did. I think I pushed it 24 hours, maybe 36 hours without eating. And I was just having water, and but then I think my I pushed it to sort of a, a 24, and I was maybe I was only eating maybe one meal a day, but. They were decent meals, but um, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't find it. I found it just fell off. It was natural for me. And can you? Sorry, being the novice out of the four of us when it comes to intermittent fasting, glad I got that out right. Mm -hmm. um, can you eat normal meals? Like obviously, there's advantages to even then cutting out, you know, things like bread, etc. I, I get that, but if you were, if I was to follow that, I need to lose a bit of timber. But if I was to follow that, let's say for three months. And I appreciate you're not like, well, you might be actually an expert, so forgive me. But what would I, what, if I do exercise as well, what sort of differences could I expect in, in what parts of my body, my, how I feel, whatever? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on the reason for you doing it. So I think um, my reason for doing it is for my daily performance, for um, a lot of the reasons I eat is for longevity. So I'm trying to think what's best at a cellular level to try and stop the aging effect on my cells, therefore I'll live for longer. You're actually about 55, aren't you? Thank you. So, but obviously, if you're doing it from a body composition point of view, then you're still going to have to be understanding your uh, total calorie consumption. You know, if you're massively over-consuming calories you're, and intermittent fasting, you're not yeah. going to get the, um, the fat loss or weight loss benefit sure. that you're looking for. Um, but I would like to think you'd probably still feel like you were getting the energy benefits um you might be getting some of the you know the benefits at cellular level but at the end of the day you should still be consuming good food yeah like humans generally you know the best thing we can do as humans is just stay away from processed food you know massively over processed the food most people consume i'd argue as well if you're exercising and you're burning say three thousand calories a day for you to eat three thousand calories in in one meal or You'd, you'd struggle unless you're eating a lot of empty calories because again it's quite easy to over consume carbohydrates uh, simple snacky type stuff um if you look at like you see these big bags of doritos or whatever it's quite easy to demolish or a full pack of biscuits i know you're you're, you're like a, a jaffa cake dish yeah. here, <laughs> so you look <laughs> at the calories in, in, a, in a full thing and it's like mm, okay but if you were to eat like a, a big meal i don't know jack of potato vegetables chicken breast steak all that type of stuff 
yeah, you, you'd be you'd be good going if you're going to eat three thousand calories in one mm. go. Um, Just steak uh, it is. But that def the calorie deficit is the main thing. This is Matt. Matt is a finance director, and this is Matt's team. Day after day, they trudge through endless stacks of paperwork like mindless zombies. But luckily for Matt and his team, things are about to get a lot better. Since Spectro has digitized their documents, there's no need for physical copies and duplicates to clutter up the office. And with a fleet of Spectrobots to take care of the mundane, Matt's team have changed the game. Don't waste the potential they've got. Get them a robot with Spectrum. Tomorrow's workplace today. For, for listeners, watchers, the potentially owners, managers of, of businesses, what, what are the practical things that they can be doing to help their, their people in terms of occupational health and well-being? First of all, you need to do your survey. You need to understand what people actually want. What are the issues you've currently got? So you need to, the same way you do an employee engagement survey to see if people are happy in the workplace, do some form of survey to find out if people, um, what areas they currently need support in. Once you've collated that data, you can then structure your program. But the chances are you're going to find people will need some support around um, probably stress and anxiety management. So make sure that there's something in, <clears throat> something in place where they can get the support they need when they need it. Um, so access to uh, quality counselling and CBT. Um, my advice on that would be avoid like just a, a standard employee assistance programme because although they sound great on paper, most of them are massively oversubscribed now. Mm -hmm. COVID definitely didn't help that. So yeah. you've got someone who needs counselling, for example, and they've got a six-week wait. Well, yeah. for me, that's, that's too long. Um, that service is not providing what it's meant to. Um, but then there's other options where you can potentially do um, a lot of companies put mental health first aiders in place, which is sort of like a first line of support within the company. As long as they operate within their scope of practice, then they're, they're a good start. Yeah. Um, and do you provide the training for that? So you will help. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a simple two day training course, I believe, to become okay. a mental health first aider. And it's, it's good because it's, a, it's good um, sort of development for someone in the organization, gives them the opportunity to, to step up to the mark. Some people like taking on that responsibility. Yeah. Um, so um, I think one area people often forget as well within like the, the mental health side of things is we spend so much time focusing on like the support for when people have got an issue, but they forget to understand what can we do to uh, actually improve the way the brain works. So um, we know that simple, simple things that can improve people's mood straight away is yeah, more activity. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the simplest thing that anybody can do in any organization is get people moving for any form of activity for 30 minutes a day, literally reduces all-cause mortality by like 50%. Yeah. It's ridiculous. If you, I, I, I say it to people all the time. If you got in front of an audience, I say, if I could tell you that I've got a magic pill here, it's got zero side effects. There's, you know, take the conspiracy theories out the side of it. It's got zero cost, and it will reduce all cause mortality by fifty percent. Would you take it? Unless you are a conspiracy theorist, you would be like, yeah, of course I'm going to take it. I'm like, that's activity. Do exercise moving, thirty yeah. minutes per day, and you will achieve that. And I think that's probably why the whole 10,000 steps a day thing's always been, oh yeah. Mm. And again, most sort of, one. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so whether it be the government trying to push that or whether it be the, the Apple watches, oh, I need to get my steps in and all the rest of it, close the rings and whatnot. But a lot of those initial or 
maybe older incentives that I've seen from uh, healthcare sort of companies is, is yeah, let's do a step challenge. And again, it works because of what you just said there, getting people off the seat moving. I mean, it we, works, we've had but then quite you get a your few. Job off. So yeah. you've got to do it, and then it's got to be constantly pulsing out that message of increasing activity. Oh, we've seen it in. There's definitely been some of our developers or finance staff, the people that are office based, that are quite sedentary, like sat down doing a lot of work. We had a couple of them up, and they were either coming in before work, doing the circuit in the woods around uh, the office, or they were doing it um, to and from work. And then as soon as the incentive finished, they just stopped and <laughs> went back to. So it's how do you keep yeah, that so as a habit? Yeah, so what businesses, what can we do as a business to encourage people to A, take a lunch break and then B, during that lunch break or before, get out of the office, walk around, get some activity? Yeah, I think um, you can definitely look to incentivize it. Okay. So, um, you know, the human behavioral psychology plays a massive part in health outcomes. And that's an area that we spend a lot of time thinking on and building into our, um, our health tech. Um, the other side of it within the workplace is actually making sure that people feel it's okay to be doing that because mm -hmm. the last thing you want is someone spending 30 minutes going for a walk at lunchtime or say they're five minutes back from the, the late back from their walk and then their manager's on their back about it or mm -hmm. people are clock watching when they walk in it's just creating the wrong you got to say as a comp company are we committed to this or we're we not yeah because if you and it comes back to that sort of trust really you know um but in terms of that uh incentivization model i think it's, it's key and it, it sounds crazy that we have to incentivize people to get healthy because like, why isn't healthy being enough? But um, once people start to feel the, the rewards in terms of the mindset and the, the, that good feeling you get from being healthier, they do tend, tend to sort of carry it on. But if we look at, if we take it even to outside of the workplace, um, so in our sort of MSK, our, our physiotherapy rehab programs that we put in place with people, whether it be workplace or whether it be, um, you know, sort of NHS led. If you go, um, we would build a digital program for someone. So they're getting taught, told what to do. They're getting video uh, demonstrations of how to do it. We then build computer vision into it so that the, the computer is actually assessing every rep that that individual does. It's giving them real-time feedback, so coaching. So uh, bend your left leg a little bit more, move your right leg more to the right, lift your right arm more. So it's literally picking up every movement using uh, computer vision, which I think is a really underused uh, mm. tool, even within possibly health and safety in the workplace. But then because of that, you're getting uh, proven um, facts that the individual is doing the, the movements. Uh, it's safe and it's quality. But then because they've, they've proved that they're actually doing it, you've been tracking it, you can then reward off the back of it. So if that individual does all of their exercises, um, say they've got you know to do five exercises five times a week and they do them all, at the end of the week, you can reward them. Here you go, there's a, a five pound voucher. Mm. But that's so much more efficient because what happens with most people, you look at the NHS system, person has an operation, the physio comes and says, right, here's your exercise sheet. Yeah. Or these days they might have improved it slightly and give them some exercises on a a uh, on a video if they've got uh, a phone or a smartphone and then two weeks later that person comes back for uh, an outpatient visit which we don't need these days with the the ability to do uh, video appointments we don't really need that outpatient visit but they come back and do the outpatient visit the physio says to them how have your exercise been going have you been doing them mm. the patient says yeah i've been doing them yeah absolutely the physio knows you're lying the patient knows <laughs> lying everyone <laughs> knows you're lying so so then that two weeks has been a waste of time so then the, the um, progress of that patient isn't as good as it should be. 
and the um, so the, the the outcome's not going to be as good. So they're not um, the the recovery won't be as fast. They're going to be slower getting back to work. They're more likely to get re-injured. So the whole thing is that mm. is that has a massive wastage in terms of time and cost, uh, and especially with the massive backlog that the NHS 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 has. That was tough to say. Mm. Um, with from a resource point of view, it just makes no sense. So if we invest in incentivizing people, we get better healthcare outcomes. Actually, we get a much better cost savings. So, you're, as well. so you're combining a couple of things there. You're using using tech to more or less build in that accountability side of it. Because really, if you look at trying to get people to change habits, change behaviour, the whole health and fitness industry is built around the whole personal training model, the whole sort of group classes. It's that accountability piece. Yeah. If you don't have an appointment or if you're not being watched, you're not, you're not going to do it on your own ultimately. Yeah. And so you're saying you can use tech to obviously video someone. If they're booked in, say, I don't know, 10 o'clock on a particular day, they do their exercises for five minutes, 10 minutes or whatever. You can use tech to see when they've done it, if they're doing it correctly, and actually gauge it. Say the program's three times a week for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is. You can very quickly see, and that feedback's sort of real time can be, I suppose, shared with the, the physio. Uh, and then they can critique and because otherwise, like Doesn't you just said, to be shared with the physio. Well, true. Because the the, the computer less, vision's doing everything. Yes, so it's using that AI, AI to decide is that exercise being done safely and effectively and to the right level. Yeah. yeah. So you actually take your saving. The, the physio time is done at the start where they set the program and say, right, you've had this operation, yeah. or you've got this injury. Mm-hmm. We need to do these exercises to get this outcome. And then from there, it just rolls itself. You can then even set it up to do the progression itself. So it's right, you've completed a week of those exercises. You've completed them all to a score level of 90% and above, right? You are now ready to progress. progress. And that's just applying it to physio. You can then apply that to all, all other areas. of So go on, I, I want to I ask you about, about how you've approached your, your sort of business in terms of there's been a couple of step changes from sort of PT, boutique sort of PT studio into more assistant, of a gym. Assistant to you assistant first. Assistant to me first. Yeah, first, give me his first gig. Um, <laughs> it's actually my second oh, job. Come my on. first job was dancing on the bar in Heslow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go there. <laughs> teaching that as well. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> At least I was getting paid. I know, yeah, I just did it for free, took my shit off. No. So, so talk us through that career then. That's, that's an interesting point you'll make. So talk us through how you've ended up being the CEO of this kind of successful business. Yeah, okay. Um, so obviously first career out of school was playing rugby. Um, so I played rugby from uh, Hull KR to start with. Then I went down to Harlequins Rugby League. Then I went to Rugby Union in Leeds and then finished my career at York Knights back in Rugby League. Um, I didn't have a particularly successful career. I managed to sort of string it out for sort of six years. Um, most, I think of that six years, I was injured for four of it. In terms of the actual, if you add up all the time, I had a six year career, four years, I was on the physio couch and having operations. Physio, so, busy, yeah. Which where you got your interest. Yeah. It's where I got a good understanding of, yeah, what happens on the, the operating table and in the physio room. So um, in when I got injured at, uh, when I was at Hull KR, I was in a contract year there. I got a bad knee injury. I thought that's it, career over. I wasn't a great player anyway. I was in a contract year. I thought there was no chance they're going to resign me. Um, I actually thought they were going to resign me. Late decision, they decided not to. It was probably a good decision from them. Um, and so, so during that time, I was like, well, I need to start looking at what else I'm going to do. The only thing I really knew was um, uh, fitness and the gym. Um, <clears throat> I became a professional rugby player because I 
just made myself the best athlete. When I was 15 years old, I watched Johnny Wilkinson kick the uh, winning World Cup goal in the uh, 2003 World Cup and decided right then I'm going to be a professional rugby player. And I wasn't the best player in my school. Uh, in my school team, like I was maybe the third or fourth, probably not even that. I wasn't even the county team. Literally, my mates used to laugh at me because I, I basically said, I'm going to be a professional rugby player. And they were like, no, you're not Jack. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so they ridiculed me for it. I was like, oh, that's fine. You do you. I'm going to do me. And I just said about every day I'd like, before school, I'd go to, they used to have this really rubbish little gym at the top of the, the school old gymnasium. It's like one of those old universal um, multi-gyms. Multi-gym, yeah. have it like a YMCA. Um, so and I go and train on a on a lunchtime. I'd go out and do my speed work or kick goals, and on the evening I'd do some f- formal training. So I was literally I put myself into pretty much from fifteen a, a professional training program. You know like what an athlete would do now. So by doing that and I do that did that throughout my full career, uh, that's all I knew. So I was like, I know I can help people become uh, a good athlete. I was looking at what was happening over in sort of America and Australia within the sort of the fitness training scene. Um, and I also knew that as a, uh, a young athlete trying to make it, there was, um, there was no one uh, stop shop for, you know, getting your fitness training, your strength work, your speed work, your nutrition work. I had to go out and find all these coaches. In fact, did have, Neil, did you have different coaches. Yeah, yeah, I would. I'd go and bring them all together. And um, so I was like, well, that's what we'll do. We'll set up a, an athlete uh, performance program uh, in a small gym. So we took a squash court at the YPR Sports Ground. Um, so literally, what is it, 10 metres by 6 metres. Um, I had about £4,000 to my name. My uh, brother had a little bit of money and we put it together, that's Sam, and we started this gym in January 2011. I had actually just got a contract to go down and play it. Harlequins in London so I was literally setting up this gym <clears throat> so I'd come home on a weekend after playing a match I would talk to the builders say right I need you to do this over the next week I'd go back down to London they'd do it I'd come home up the weekend and check that they'd done it all right and then the, the thing would work, go again <clears throat> then I went to Leeds so to start with the gym was pretty um, a side hustle against my rugby my rugby career was was never great but it was on, on the downward and actually once we set up the gym we started to get a pretty good reputation we did some qualifications to become um, sort of like the top 5% of uh, strength and conditioning coaches in the country so we started to attract some good athletes you know we had sort of Olympians come in we had professional rugby players footballers just based off our what was a small, but we had a little bit of a, a name within the city. We yeah. definitely had a name for being good athletes, even if people didn't think we were very good rugby players. <laughs> um, so we did that. Um, but then when I came out of, I, I had no intention, as, uh, uh, I had no interest in being an entrepreneur or business at all. You know, I wasn't, you see like entrepreneurs at uh, uh, school and they're selling sweets mm-hmm. and whatever. I was never like that at all. In fact, when I was the, uh, we did the Young Enterprise at school and our team actually got to the second or third in the country i was the the mascot we we, we had a we had a company called tops off and we did um customized uh credit card bottle openers so the uh, the mascot was a bottle so i used to dress as a bottle costume right? no business intelligence at all the funny thing about that is the uh the md of that who's a good pal of mine is now the chief ops officer for hello fresh so oh, he's going oh, wow. to do that the bottle's still the bottle, but as a surprise, we've actually got the bottle. Out. Yeah, <laughs> okay, you can wear it again. You can probably find the pictures. I'm going to log into my Facebook, that which I can't. I'll be able to find it for you. Um, so, I'm giving you lots of background. But so essentially, we had this gym. Uh, as I stepped out of rugby, and the the gym started to do better. Um, 
I started to actually get a real taste for business and really the competition that I was lacking from because I stopped playing competitive sport mm. started to come into business. Um, so we started to say, well, we're not going to be able to build a particularly big business. Um, there was there was me, my co-founding brother Sam, and then my our elder brother Will had joined the team by this point. He's a, he was an ex-captain of the Marines. He came and joined us in 2014. And um, so we said, well, what we've got here is a uh, a program for improving human performance. Yes, we're using it to improve athletic performance, actually. Why don't we take this to all the corporates? We've got some big corporates locally, let's, let's take it to them and say, we can improve the performance of your employees by improving their health. Mm. It sounded like a great idea. We went out there thinking, yeah, let's go. We're gonna go. This, everyone's gonna love this. And everyone's like, we absolutely love this, but we've got no money. Yeah. We can't, we don't have a budget for well-being. There was, at this point, there was, uh, businesses didn't care about their employees at this point. I don't know if that's true, but there was no well-being wasn't on the agenda, and there was definitely no well-being budget. So we we're literally banging our head against the wall, saying, "God, guys, we're just selling a nice to have here. Everyone likes it, but there's no budget. What do people have to buy?" And that's when we realised occupational health. There was this statutory requirement to, for some businesses to purchase it, and most businesses need it in some capacity. So we said, "Right, that fits in with what we do. It's still a health-related product." Let's go out and learn what occupational health is. So we did that, we built a clinical team, um, and then we grew from there. But what we'd accidentally done, oh sorry, I mean strategically positioned ourselves <laughs> yeah. perfectly for was, because um, we've had an awful lot of luck to get where we are. Strategically, we positioned ourselves accidentally where the, let's call it like the employee wellbeing revolution started and it started to rise on the agenda. We were perfectly positioned to take advantage of that mm. because we were probably the only occupational health company which was wellbeing first because all the others, all of our other competitors were set up by nurses and doctors mm. who were great at all the clinical stuff but didn't have a clue how to improve wellbeing um, and you know uh, productivity and performance, that sort of thing. So that meant we were perfectly positioned to take advantage of that and we, we just call that wave. I think it's fair to say there's a bit of a north-south divide as well, because in the north, in, in London or the, the sort of bigger companies down south, again, or even international companies, they probably did have a budget for it. But where we are up in Hull, and again, you probably shifted quite nicely because from PT, you were probably, a bit like myself, training the business owners. So again, I got the job at Spectrum because I trained the MD. So again, and then linking that through to actually manufacturing in Hull's massive. So let's let's segue and look at, well, actually, what do these lifting and handling, all those different things like that. And then from there, so I'm interested that over the last couple of years, it's you have it's jumped from just being local to being national, but also you, the head county staff, the clinical. That must have been a big shift for you to go from the three of you to all of a sudden employing a lot of staff. You've gone from more of a, a strength coach PT to, like you said, there's a big shift to jump to being a CEO. Mm -hmm. And I know from, from knowing you for a long time, there's that personal development side of things because you learn new skill sets. So you've had, from what I saw of Jack when he was younger, like you just said there, he, his mental toughness of what he wanted to achieve from, well, I'm going to train like an athlete before I've even got the gig. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, what do these guys do? Let's break it down. Well, let's put those actions in place and then I'll, I'll get the end result. So you can apply that to business. What are those businesses doing over here? Let's see what they're doing, breaking it down and let's put the right people in the right positions. But at the time, I think you had to learn different skills of marketing. Yeah. You had to get up and go and make it happen and then bring in a team. And then that that's a bit of a step change. So just, I mean, probably the last three years have been quite 
quite an accelerated growth for you guys. Yeah, could you just repeat that question? So the question, <laughs> <laughs> I'll summarize it. How have you gone from, last three years, you've gone from a P, well, strength coach to it. So I, yeah. I get your question, yeah. I think um, you're absolutely right that, so number one is for me has always been the ability to start with the end in mind. So this is the outcome I want. How do I achieve that and work back? So if we're looking at what we're doing now or where we are now, it was, right, we're a small business. How do we, what do we need to do to become a big business? I think that's a lot of mistakes a lot of businesses make is they want to become a, 10 million pound a year company, but they're not prepared to put the infrastructure in place to become that. It's like, well, it's impossible, you know? Um, so, you know, it's like saying we want to do 10 million a year in sales. Well, if your sales team don't have the capacity to do 10 million a year in mm -hmm. sales, you're not going to do it. You, you have to physically increase that, um, that capacity first. So from a business point of view, that was definitely what I learned. Then start with the end in mind and build with that. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, which has always helped me. Like I say, like I think successful people have that though. They have like an inflated s uh, sense of self. They um, have an inferiority complex, which to use your word, John, creates that sort of dichotomy where you're like, you back yourself, but you're constantly saying, oh, am I good enough? So that constantly drives you mm -hmm. on. And then the final one is impulse control, which if you think starting with the end in mind, you say, well, I don't want to do something today, which um, sacrifices what I'm trying to do in three years time. So those three things have been key. And the other point you, tap, you tapped into there is about that self-development. And I just think it's the, the biggest thing. Everybody, I want to be careful here, I'm not sounding like Molly May, but it was say 24 hours. No, I disagree. Uh, but most people have got the opportunity to develop themselves. You know, everything you need to know is out there, has already been written. You just need to find out who's already done it, get them to teach you it, and then go and put that into your little map of the world and then go out and find someone else to bring that into your map of the world and you're constantly going to keep growing it. Um, Are there any difficult lessons you've had to learn over the course of that? You've been yeah. hugely successful. You've grown the business in X number of years to 80 staff. You mm -hmm. tell them. So any stuff that you'd share that you think, God, I wish I could do that again? Um, I think number one is um, would be understand that it's just as hard to grow a small business as it is to grow a big business. So like start with that that big vision and, and say that this is what I'm going to achieve. Uh, number two would be um, the old classic comment, if you're going to go somewhere fast, go on your own, but if you want to go far, go as a team. So get a good team behind you. And that takes me on to point three, which is find really good people because we, we used to try and do it with okay people, loyal people, and had this like little band of merry men. And then all of a sudden you bring in like an A plane, you're like, oh wow, that's that's what good looks like. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, your yeah. business goes boom. So you know you like plateau and you bring in a few good people and it's like here and it's, and then they bring attracts more good people. Yeah. Um, that's I want to link it, I guess, to so we've talked about it in the past in terms of from what we we talk about. So I'd sort of bring it into systemize, automate, and scale. So if a business needs to, you've got to have some good systems, processes. We then talk to them about how you automate that, how you leverage that, and then ultimately, if you've got a scaling mentality and you want to grow quick, that those two pillars sort of link that together. But also linking it back to <laughs> healthcare and the NHS and, and healthcare providers, you look at how siloed the information is and data and systems, it drives me mental. I have to go to different people and repeat myself and go through all my health records. And and again, you're trying to disrupt your industry because the occupational health has been quite sort of, it's been stagnated, I guess, over a number of years and you're coming in it from a different, yeah, they are my <laughs> words. They're coming at it from a different angle. But again, there's the thing like the blockchain, we spoke about that before and just touch on, 
your views on how where that's going and also your vision for the future yeah so I, I think healthcare is definitely slow to adopt new technology if we think healthcare is well occupational health is literally stuck in the 1970s we are mm. our competitors are using like 1970s technology and so it, when we came into the the industry we were like wow this is like ripe for disruption um and we're not particularly tech savvy people or you know we're not particularly visionary, I want to thought. So um, so we came into it and said, well, well f first of all, um, we want to make sure that we give everybody the, or every employee the care they need, when they need it, wherever they are. And then want to make sure that we look at it from like a holistic point of view, because siloed is the best word. So you go to see your, uh, a healthcare professional, say you've got a knee injury. Okay, well, you, they'll, they'll come and look at you purely for what's the, mechanical issue with that knee. They probably won't even look above and below the knee, but we won't get into that. Um, just look at it as a physical point of use. They say, you need to go away and do these exercises. You go back to them again in let's say a month's time and that knee isn't getting better. And they say, come on, you need to do your exercise. Well, the reason that knee isn't getting better may not be a physical issue, it could be a mental issue. You might be depressed because you, you're no longer able to do the physical activity you used to do. Yeah, play football or whatever you love to uh -huh. do, golf. Or you, you, you might even be seeing a, uh, you know, a, a counsellor for your mental health, which is then affecting that. But if you don't have the ability to look across the silos, as you call them, to say, actually, this is the full picture of this person's health. You're not going to get to root cause. So let's sort the depression out. Then all of a sudden you're feeling happy, you're feeling better. You do your exercises and bingo, the knee's better. But we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't looked out of that physical silo. So when we built Yoda, which is our um, digital healthcare uh, platform, it's, a, it's the world's first connected healthcare platform. And that's exactly what that connected healthcare platform means. We connected people's healthcare journeys, their full profile, so it's all accessible, subject to consent within the click of a button. So if you've got a uh, your physio who wants to just check in someone's full full notes, subject to consent from the, the employee, they can check in with what's happening at uh, a mental health level, what's happening at you know, dif different parts of the, um, across the healthcare needs. So you can pull in NHS records into that, or is it just stuff that I guess goes into the app? Yeah, so it's, it's ha well, ours is the other way around actually. We update NHS records. Okay. So obviously, you're, currently, your NHS record is the only record that is meant to have all of your mm. health data on it. So I was the other way around. So we update into the NHS Central system. Record. I mean, you, you touched on blockchain. And I think that the issue we have around blockchain is the fact that everyone just assumes it's just to do with crypto and Bitcoin yeah. and all that. And actually, um, blockchain has been around for a good bit longer until Bitcoin sort of made it popular again. Um, but for healthcare, it makes perfect sense. You know, it, it makes sense to put the uh, the patient or the employee in in charge and ownership of their their own data, um, and they can then use that. They can actually leverage it potentially to generate their own revenue. Um, you might have a, a study going on. You've got Pfizer doing a study. They're saying, right, we're looking for <clears throat> males between 25 and 30. So John puts his hand up and says, yep, I'll have a bit of that. <laughs> Clicks the button. I like it. <laughs> I like it. And says, real, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I can take part in that, that study. And you, you, know, you click consent and they can access your data. It's temporary access and you can withdraw it post-study. Um, if we look at it actually more from your side or even just real world, um, and I've had this before. So I was with a clinic in Hull. I wanted to move my uh, down to a clinic in London, and I the process I had to go to to get my medical data to that clinic was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This day and age, it was 
um, ring up first of all and ask. Then it was, uh, yeah, that's fine, but you have to come and sign a consent. I had to go and physically sign a consent paper. There you go. Then they had to print them all out. They printed me out. I had to go in and pick up literally a doc full of, because like you can imagine my, my medical yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I pulled Bionic those man. out. I then, then helped to get them down to London. I then had to scan them back in. Wow. So, and then email them down. It's just ridiculous. That should all be stored in my own wallet, which, are, you know, the clicker button, I can say, yeah, um, right, the, where's the best knee surgeon? It's in India. I want to have a, uh, an online consultation with that person. Boom, there you go, consent. You can see my data. And how close is that to becoming a reality? Within healthcare? Yeah. I would say a long, long way off, purely because the, of policy. The, the technology is there, which is, yeah, exactly, it's policy. It's, the technology is there, it's been proven. It's, it's quite... But again, you look at anything that disrupts any market, it's down to the entrepreneurs mm. and to, to, to make it viable. And, 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 and the market wants it. I mean, it, it frustrates. I remember my granddad just been in the hospital. You get one, because yeah. again, he had different ailments. So one's treating him for his diabetes, the other one's treating him for his pacemaker. And they're asking him the same questions. And it's logical. Hang on, I've just told that doctor that information. Why am I telling you the same information? And he was getting frustrated and he, he wasn't techie, but it just made logical sense. Why why do I have to keep sharing my information? So, But, but do you think it could be, being devil's advocate, because I completely understand, I've I've had three letters arrive for you know a, a specialist appointment in two days for the same appointment, which is it's a it's in the post they could have emailed it and b they managed to send three for the same appointment you know all the cost of on one of however many tens of millions but do you think it's and it's a it's a negative way to look at it from from the nhs's perspective or, or health but do you think it's just cost to changing you know it's a it's like you know it's a, a massive iceberg and actually changing the direction of that the amount of money that they bear in mind they're you know they they get lots of money they waste and even they waste huge amounts of money but actually to stop wasting it they're probably gonna have to spend more to stop it and redirect it how how i think you straight away got to take a long-term approach to it at some point you've got to make that change yeah you know they, they have it's like when they they do have an electronic medical record storage system at the moment. At some point, they had to move towards that, and it would yeah. have been a painful change. Um, so that that does have to happen. But you can't use the the fear of the process. And I suppose that's the same with most workplaces. Most workplaces, and you talk about how to scale a business. Most workplaces have the fear of oh, that's going to be hard work to get to that point. But it's that once you get to that point, you can then scale much faster. So mm. do you want to go through six months of pain? I know it'd be a lot longer for the NHS, but within the business, say you bring in a new automated system, it might be six months of pain, six months of training, updating data, but then you've got this great product in yeah. place which you can then scale business with. It's the same thing with the NHS. So it's like, yes, it'll probably it mean they probably went over budget in year one and two when they're actually doing that change. But then that would probably massively reduce costs ongoing. Totally get that, and I can I hundred percent agree. Uh, I, I suppose I was just thinking while you were answering. I wonder whether it's a case of because it, you know ultimately governments probably don't want to be held responsible. Whoever's in power doesn't want to be held responsible for. Do you know what? It's going to go downhill for a bit. It's going to be an absolute you know storm mm -hmm. but actually at the end of it we're going to have this much better much more digital efficient you know yeah. thing and but, but, but yeah but you're right to make a good point without getting into politics which is yeah. dangerous ground mm -hmm. 
the government of the day that makes that investment, the, the next government is actually going to get the benefit from yeah, it. Yeah, no, yeah, no, it is. Absolutely right. And because we look at uh, policy and decisions in four year cycles, or less mm. than that, because we start to think about when are we going to get the votes. Um, and I don't um, know a lot about different politics, but I understand the healthcare system. And even if you look at, everybody knows that we should be moving towards more of a preventative healthcare model. That is the way forward to catching disease earlier. No one would argue that that's the right move. The issue is it's going to take a very brave yep. government mm. to say, we're going to move towards a preventative healthcare model because to do that, you've got to switch budget from reactive healthcare, i.e. looking after these people who are sick, mm. to yep. saying we're going to look after these people who are not quite sick enough yet. Mm. And that means you've got all these people over here where the budget isn't assigned who aren't going to be happy and therefore aren't going to vote. Mm. And that's, that is the issue that the people making decisions are reliant on these people for the votes. And it takes a very brave person to make that decision. I'm glad. And I suppose, that, 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 I suppose that links it right back to sort of the workplace because for me, uh, employers are employing people. So again, if we take, again, like any good entrepreneur or any, any business, we take full ownership of our people, our, our own destiny, our own journey. So let's let's put things in place to help the culture with, again. Um, but also, we, I know we, we're sort of getting close to the time limit, but I wanted to touch on the, the hybrid sort of workplace, how you sort of see that panning out in the future, because I know there's been a big shift, obviously the pandemic forced people to work from home. How did that Im impact people's health, mental health? How do, how do businesses, yeah, moving forward with the hybrid side of things, how do they keep people engaged? How, how have you seen that been a bit of a transition? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's now that if we look, if companies were looking at putting in place or they were putting in place well-being programs at work, now well-being needs, they also need to focus on that well-being at home. Even simple things like how many people got sent to work at home, but there was no um, understanding of whether it was safe for that person to work at home. You know, if you actually look at the number of people who have probably, you know, if you want a really specific thing, got a, a C5 bulge now because they spent loads of time on the, the laptop mm. on yeah, the desk that yeah. the wrong height. You know, you guys have all got fantastic screens here. You obviously had all your DSC assessments done here. Has anybody done that when they go home? So making sure people have got the right chair, making sure they've got the right desk, the right... Yes, yeah, so at the kitchen table. And you saw yeah. people, and people were sort of joking about it, you know, on the ironing boards and things like that. Yeah, well, they were putting cardboard boxes in the laptop. Which was, which was fine yeah. when we thought it was going to be like a three-month thing. Yeah. Like, COVID ended up being the best part of two years, um, which definitely led to burnout, because people... The problem with burnout normally happens when there's no end in sight, and it got to the point where people are like, I don't know when the end of this is. Yeah. You know, we even being at the, the forefront of it, as not that we started it, but you know, it's in terms of um, very much on the, the healthcare sector, we were thinking like three months on this. You know, we were having our crisis talks and thinking, all right, we've got enough cash to keep paying everyone for six months. It's not going to last more than three months, we'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Some of our competitors will fall out and we'll mix some business. <laughs> we were like, great. And then Rishi Sunak came in and saved the day and ruined our strategy. Go on, That's Yeah. So, but, um, but no, uh, essentially what uh, businesses need to do is make sure that the same care that's available and wellbeing solutions that are available at the office, at the workplace, are also available at home. And that's why we're seeing this. Uh, and COVID did us a favour from this point of view. It transitioned businesses to being starting to be prepared to receive their healthcare digitally, uh, mainly because people got forced exposure to it. So, I mean, 
our uh, main product within within Yoda is actually the ability to deliver all of our occupational health services, including like hearing tests, lung function tests, totally remotely. So we can now test everybody's hearing, no matter where they are, well, really in the world, um, other than clinical governance across regions. Um, but in terms of tech, that's that we can now do that. So, um, and when we were first putting this in pre-COVID, people were like, no, we still want you to send your nurse to our site to do this appointment. And we're mm -hmm. like, it's really not necessary. You know, from an environmental point of view, we've got all those miles of travel uh, for an appointment that could be done over a video call. Then when we started looking and saying, well, actually, we do have an environmental agenda, agenda behind what we're trying to do. You know, the whole of the um, UK Healthcare Alliance is trying to get to uh, net carbon zero by 2040. We said we want to be there by 2030 and we're going to lead the way within occupational health. So we started to review it and say, how do we give people access to the, the care they need when they need it, wherever they are, but without the environmental impact uh, and bringing those two together? Um, almost as our the problem we we're trying to solve brought us to Yoda, um, and has allowed us to really sort of disrupt the the industry. And that's and that's an app, isn't it, that you've you've developed? It's a it's a it's a, a web app. It's a, a mobile app for the employees to access. Um, but it's 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 also the obviously so that's the software part. But then we've also built the hardware and integrated the hardware to allow us to do the uh, actual testing. Yes, of course. Last question for me, Jack, because I'm conscious of time. We need to let John go. But, um, he's got a job to do. He's got mm. a job to do. But yeah, um, the question I always ask guests is, the podcast is called Tomorrow's Workplace Today. So if you yeah. cast your mind forward 10 years, within the healthcare industry specifically, what other, and we've touched on some of this already, so you can summarise, but what mm -hmm. are the key um, elements, I guess, of that industry? Yep. Um, okay. Um, I think the... Um, Biggest change I'm looking forward to seeing is when we have the ability to um, engage in an immersive way with the best clinicians around the world. So you know, using uh, virtual reality to, to do that. Um, I also believe that as part of that, with the way that we can now um, create a full genome for someone, we can build a genetically identical digital twin. And then what we can do with that digital twin, you know, effectively we can, we're going to be able to do practice surgeries on them. We're going to be able to see the effect of um, a particular prescription or drug on that digital twin. Wow. So you're going to get a lot better um, healthcare outcomes because we're almost going to be able to do like a dress rehearsal practice before, before and uh, speed the same way if you were testing, I don't know, a food product, you might say, right, to test the cell by date of this, this food product, we're going to put it in an oven, heat it up. To, to, and that's going to be the equivalent of you know, two years of shelf life. We're going to be able to do that with a digital twin. We're going to say, right, if we put this in place, this, this uh, exercise prescription or this drug prescription in place, um, and what's, what's the difference for that digital twin in 10 years' time? At this dosage, at this dosage, at this dosage, it's going to allow us to be so much more um, accurate. And it brings it into that sort of digital hospital. Like you say, yeah. we've talked about it where, yeah, you want to see an appointment or you can put on the, the headset like you see with the metaverse and all that type of stuff. But if we said about it before, we think if, if Apple, for example, don't know if it's in the pipeline, but probably is, if they bring out a headset. Oh, is it? Really and I think, I think uh, that's going to be a bit of a step change. And I think from there, like you say, you're already thinking about that development. And I wanted to link it in with, the, you did an interview with Bernard Ma, didn't you? And he's obviously very big into tech, futurism and that type of stuff. So if, if people do want to sort of know a little bit more about it, you go into a bit more detail on there. But again, yeah. that, that development um, actually 
a world, a, a digital hospital, so you can literally put something on and go see and speak to the to the different consultants is is uh, is definitely on on the horizon. Yeah, no, no, and something you're actively trying to develop. Very much so. Is almost the best way we can see to democratize high quality healthcare because especially as the cost of um, VR comes down, I don't think it's coming down as fast as people think. I think the, the fact that Meta are subsidizing the Oculus isn't helping people think, oh, it's like $300 mm -hmm. for a headset. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> but um, I do uh, believe that that is gonna be the best way to give people access to high quality healthcare and you'll be able to get it to, and you'll be able to reach the best practitioner in the world. And I'm very excited about the Apple release because the problem at the moment, I think, is a lot of these headsets, people are like, I don't want to wear that, I can't see that. Yeah. Whereas you'll see the Apple one, and you're like, oh, wow, now I get it. So you're going to get this. I think that's really going to be the catalyst to transition towards mainstream use of VR. Um, because we know that Apple build products that delight customers. Yeah, and you're like, absolutely. oh, well, that's nice. And you're not going to be afraid to have it on. I think within, once they've released that, probably within a couple of years, it'll be norm to be sitting on a train on your way down to London or something, and you'll see everybody with their headsets on doing this tapping away on a, a, the, the table on the, the train. Um, because obviously their their computer screens will all be yeah. within this virtual reality or augmented reality. I think Apple will be more towards augmented because I think the one problem with virtual reality is you feel very vulnerable once you've got those goggles on because yeah. you're in your own little world and in a public space you're going to be concerned about someone coming in. <laughs> but it, it, link, it links into um, adoption of technology. If you think about COVID, it forced people to go video, especially for health, health benefits. You, had, you actually, instead of people going to the GPs, they were having video or telephone yeah, conferences yeah. with the GP and it became the norm. And the same with us, like when we're having conversation, normally we'd go have meetings. Now it's Teams or Zoom or whatever. It forced that adoption. So now you've got that trend and that shift I think it's going to accelerate. I think you're right. I think Apple's product could be the catalyst for that. Yeah, it will remove that um, two-dimensional disconnect. Mm. So video calls are great, um, but there's nothing like being in the room with your in our in our industry with your clinician. Yeah. And VR, once people start to experience it, it is immersive. You don't okay. You're talking currently to an avatar, but if you're if we were in this room virtually now and Neil was speaking and I've got my VR on, I'm turning to look. Is mm. this what yeah. you do? And you, you, it yeah. feels a lot more real life than you think. Jack, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the chat. Cheers, guys. Yeah.